0: Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining us here on Off the Couch on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Matt Mitchell, the running editor at Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. All right. So the last time I had this week's guest, Olivia Amber, on the show, she was just about to ship off for a three-month-long road trip through South America to cross off some climbing objectives and race some trails. And now that she's been back stateside for a bit, I asked her to come on the podcast and regale me with some of her stories from her time abroad. We talked about some of the otherworldly terrain down by Tierra del Fuego at the southernmost tip of the continent, and the ins and outs of her burly Huaymuel Circuit FKT, which she set just outside of El Town in Argentina. The second half of the show is more of a back and forth about fast-packing best practices, and involves quite a bit of gear talk. So make sure to stick around if that's of any interest. But before I bring Olivia on, I wanna take a quick minute to remind you guys that registration is now live for our 2024 Blister Summit. From February 4th through the 8th, we'll be hosting a series of summit events in our hometown of Mount Crested Butte, Colorado. Expect a bunch of on-snow activities and demo opportunities from industry-leading brands, panel sessions with company founders and professional athletes, daily restorative yoga, a bevy of food and drink options, and a whole lot more. For more info on what to expect and how to register, check out the link in the show notes. All right. And finally, I also just want to remind you guys to leave us a rating or review after this conversation wraps up. Little things like that really help us continue to put out new episodes of the podcast each week. Okay, let's get right into my chat with Olivia. Olivia, welcome back to the show.
1: Thanks. It's great to be back.
0: So I think the last time we talked, you were just about to head down to South America for a while. So why don't we pick up our conversation there? Um, I'm sure it's kind of hard to really summarize a trip of that scale in a sentence or two. So I won't ask you to do that. Uh, but I'm wondering if you can kind of give me the broad strokes of, of where you were and, and uh, maybe some, some highlights.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely hard to summarize a multi-month trip. Um, but yeah, we had quite the adventure. We were in Chile and Argentina. Um, we did climbing, running, a lot of fly fishing, which I'm just getting into. Uh, but basically, we did a road trip from Punta Arenas, which is the southernmost town in chile which also happens to be the southernmost town on the continent of south america and we road tripped from there back up to santiago so we were able to explore a bunch of areas in both chile and argentina on our way north and it was it was a really amazing adventure and experience um definitely had some some classic problems that you would expect on a long road trip through through a foreign country but it was it was really... It was an amazing experience. We got to connect with some of the running community down there and uh, local climbing communities as well. And it was just... It was an amazing experience. I'm excited to go back in the future, hopefully with even better Spanish because it definitely was at least the crux of the trip for me. I know some Spanish, but I'm not fluent. And so it was really cool to get better at it, which is another reason why we kind of chose to go down there as well. So all around, just an amazing trip. I highly recommend people, people venture down there they have the time
0: (laughs) yeah i feel like you're living in an infinite summer because you missed our (laughs) hellacious northern california winter uh headed down there right at the peak of their summer right
1: yeah totally it's bizarre since coming from a ski uh ski background winter was always my favorite season and so it's so weird to think that i opted to choose to have infinite summer that's so weird for me but it it's funny because down in patagonia it's the weather is just so extreme that in a lot of ways it didn't really feel like summer one of the the peaks that we climbed we ended up you know getting caught in snow just just blizzard conditions basically um which is just bizarre because it was like the middle of the summer for them down there um which is yeah you know, pretty normal uh for them to just get a lot of snow just in the middle of their summer um, but regardless, it definitely is still you know when we're up in Santiago and stuff is definitely still very hot, very summer like conditions definitely dependent on where we were um uh uh for 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 that, but yeah, it's so weird to have missed winter
0: <laughs> yeah that uh I'm curious about the the trail running you did down there because like I feel like compared to places like Europe or the u s um South America doesn't really get as much representation um when it comes to that that sport down there and uh I'm sure as you'll tell us like that's that's kind of like a misconception because people love to run down there. Right.
1: Yeah, definitely. There's definitely a a contingent of amazing runners down there and amazing trails. Um but you know, the public land situation is different than what we have in the States or in Europe, for example. And so the access does sort of... uh create smaller pockets of those communities but they totally exist and there are crushers for sure and it was really cool to experience a race down i did a race called ultra Fiord, which is down in um out of puerto natales which is a town right outside of the national park called torres del Paine, which i think a lot of people are pretty familiar with um and um, yeah, it was just outside the park. The reason why it was just outside the park is because you're technically not allowed to run in the park um, for two reasons, which are one, it's, they have decided it's too dangerous to run and two, it can scare the wildlife. But obviously you can't backpack and hike and, you know, walk on the trails. You're just technically not supposed to run on the trails in the national parks there, which is very interesting because as we all know, in the States, that's not, you know, that's not a rule. You're allowed to run. Um, but the the race was just outside the park boundary. And it was amazing. It was so cool. Uh, and it was really... Uh, one of my favorite parts of it was just meeting uh, a lot of the runners down there. And a lot of people were visiting. They traveled and it was kind of a destination race for a lot of people. Um, but there were some local runners that we met and we ended up meeting up with again later to to do some to do some running and stuff with uh in another location but yeah it was it was an amazing amazing experience getting to know a little bit of the canoe we barely scratched the surface for sure um but yeah so many great great runners and great places to go
0: I had no idea that there are fjords down there like at all <laughs> is that what kind of like the landscape's are like is it like like you know Norway or whatever
1: I mean in some respects it's it's interesting because yeah it's it's just this bizarre combo of ocean and mountain and since the mountains are right coming up from these the these fjords they're not that high in terms of elevation um but they're super glaciated we're so far south um and yeah it's it's you know, I haven't really spent that much time in the fjords of Norway to really make or draw many comparisons, but um, my, my partner Eric has, and he definitely was drawing some. So I think that, you know, because he can attest to that, I think we it's safe to say there are some comparisons, but you know, it's like anywhere you go somewhere and you can pull different aspects of different places around the world and compare them, but it's still unique it's a unique place. There really is nowhere like it. I mean, there's, we were drawing comparisons to places in Alaska, places in Scandinavia and, and even places in the States, but still it's, you would have to just go down there and experience it because there really truly is nowhere, nowhere else like it in the world, at least where I have been. Um,
0: That's cool. I think like, when I was down there, cause I, I, uh, I came down for two weeks at the tail end of your trip. Uh yeah. Kinda, so you know. fun. <laughs> yeah, it was rad. I, I was in uh Santiago for a bit. Um, but we drove to the coast and it just reminded me of like the I-5 corridor. Yeah. Like it reminded me of California. And I guess that kind of makes sense considering it's on the same longitude. Yeah. Not a
1: geography major. <laughs> no.
0: No, not at all. I'm good at typing.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's uh it's definitely similar to the Central Valley of California in that in that area of Chile. Um it is interesting Chile as a country definitely has a lot of similarities to the state of California and just it's yeah, to your point it's a similar longitude um it you know is super long and follows the pacific coastline just like California obviously it's much longer
0: <laughs> yeah like 4000 miles
1: it, yeah it's insane it's so yeah. It's hard to comprehend until you go there just how long and skinny the country of Chile is. And then right. once you go, you're wow, this is it's so narrow. that um, like it's so easy. you're basically almost in Argentina the entire time you're in Chile, which is just wild. um but yeah, from a geography standpoint, it's such an amazing place to be. And just getting down to like the very, you know, tip of the continent, which is about as close as you can get to being in Antarctica, you can tell, like, you feel like you're almost in Antarctica from, like, the, uh, the weather, the, the, the climate, the, the landscape. It's, it's really cool.
0: What is it like navigating, like, the, the Cape down there? Like, how do you kind of get across the little islands and such? Because I know that, like, it kind of splits up into uh, just a bunch of tiny little parcels of land.
1: Yeah, my understanding is, and we did not go out to any of the tiny islands, but we, we considered it. And my understanding is there, there are a couple of ferry systems that can get you out to places in Tierra del Fuego, which is sort of that island, um, that group of islands right off the, the tip of the continent. And some of Tierra del Fuego's Chile, some of it's, um, Argentina, um, I think that's actually changing. It might actually be Chile soon. I don't know for sure. Don't quote me on that. Um, but um, there are some ferry systems that can get you out there. And then once you're out there, you can go via 4x4 vehicle um, or by foot. Um, there's you know, a couple of actual like trail systems on some of the islands and some mountain ranges that are really cool looking um, that are just out there, um, on the islands. And so, you know, it's hard to get out there because, because again, the weather's so extreme. I, <laughs> some of the people we talked to were like, yeah, you know, I went to do a week trip, but I ended up getting stuck out there for two or three weeks because the ferry couldn't pick me up because the weather was too bad. So it's hard to really comprehend that. Cause I feel like everything is, you know, pretty dialed and pretty predictable relative to that, at least, uh, here in the States. And so, um, is such an interesting, it's, it's just an interesting concept to be like, okay, like just because there's a ferry schedule doesn't mean that it's actually going to, to be legit and you have to kind of, you know, constantly be figuring out plan B, C, D, E, even further down the the alphabet um but yeah there's definitely ways to get out there i'm sure if you you know had your you know a prop plane or your own boat or something there's you know even more options uh but i don't know definitely not into that
0: i just think it's so cool that there's still like parts of like the world that um are completely like almost absent of like human life still you know considering like how many people are on this planet
1: yeah. And if you really want to feel that, go down there. <laughs> cool.
0: So in addition to, uh, racing down there, I know you had an FKT on your list. Um, can you tell me about, about, uh, how that kind of came about?
1: Yeah. So I did the Huamul circuit, which is a fairly well-known truck outside of El Chalten, which is a town in Argentina, Um, El Shell 10 is sort of the town that the Fitzroy group is, is out of. And so a lot of, it does get a lot of people, um, a lot of tourism. There's a lot of trails there. A lot of people will do, um, a lot of hiking and climbing. And it's just, I mean, it's a, a climbers Mecca for sure. It's amazing, amazing place for that. Um, but Basically, once we made it up north, so nor- Shelton is north of the Rosarito del Pine area. Um, once we made it up there, I was feeling like I was in pretty good shape, and I wanted to do another harder effort. And so the home wheel Circuit um, seemed like a great option. It's actually it's not in a national park, so I could run it without feeling like I was doing something that was against the rules. <laughs> um, but yeah, so basically, in the sort of 10 massive. There's a peak called Cerro Huamul. And Cerro Huamul is just like kind of pile of a mountain. It's not like the mountains of the Fitzroy group that are super jagged. I mean, it, Fitzroy group is literally the company of Patagonia's logo. Um It's not like that. It's like this sort of Move, move those pile of rock, sort of on the southernmost end, which also happens to be the southern, southernmost end of the Patagonia, the southern Patagonia ice shelf, which is so cool. Like to be at the very end of the one of the biggest ice shelves in the world. Like that's so cool. Um, and so this track, this circuit, is forty miles and about ten thousand feet of vert. I think, like, yeah, yeah. Um, around Cerro Huemul, and so it's called the Huemul Circuit for that reason. Uh, but yeah, it's an amazing circuit. I highly recommend going. It's there's a great combination of off-trail scrambling, on trail, like basically if anyone's ever done the John Muir Trail, like where there's those super buffed out trail sections that you can just haul on, combination of trails like that. Um, there's two Tyrolean traverses, um, which you can look that up later if you <laughs> aren't familiar because we don't really have that many of those. Um, but they're basically, if there's a canyon or a place that you need to sort of get across, like a river, um, there are these fixed cables that run across those, um, that kind of terrain and you just hook in. Um, I brought like a really small glacier harness because glacier harnesses tend to be a lot more packable and a lot lighter um, than a regular climbing harness and just kind of lock, lock locking carabiner, lock into the cable and just pull yourself across. Um, So there are two Tyrell traverses and three fixed ropes. And the fixed ropes are all in like the other, the sort of latter half of, of the route. Um, and basically the fixed ropes are there because they go across really steep terrain. There are two rocky cliffs. And the first one is like, it's just super, super steep eroded, um, uh, and bush sort of vegetation area. And so there's a fixed rope there because, um, people can slip and fall like really far if, if um if you did fall you'd fall very far cuz it's very steep um but yeah it's a really cool and dynamic circuit and most people will probably you know do it i think it's like 3 or 4 day average um which honestly would be amazing cuz spending more time out there would just be rad i did it and i think it was like 9 hours um i was hoping to go for the men's at <laughs> kt but it, the navigation proved very challenging since I had not been out there before. Um, but I definitely want to go back and and go for it again. And I hope others do too, because I think it can go really, I think it can go a lot faster um, than the current times, my current time and the current fastest um, men's time too, if you know the terrain. Um, But, Beautiful circuit, some of the most beautiful train I've ever been in. Uh, and just a really dynamic, a really dynamic one too. Cause it's more than just running on trail.
0: Yeah, you had a really good write-up of the effort on FKT.com. Um, that was yeah, super thorough and gave a bunch of beta as well as like a gear list. Um, and I'm wondering if you kind of pulled on any other um beta from from people that had run it in the past before your effort.
1: Yeah, I did. So, and we can talk more about this too if we want to. Ultimately, to talk more about fast packing, but I um I did look up sort of as many condition reports as possible. Um, I, you know, of course, first went on FKT to figure out okay what if has so far been the fastest route, and what are some of the things that I need to know, just like baseline about the route from the person who has done it the fastest thus far. And the sort of glaringly obvious thing to me was that the the guy had done the route multiple times prior to to his fastest time, um, and it seemed like based on his Feedback and his write up. The crux for me was probably going to be the navigation, just given the off trail sections go through um, a glacier moraine, which basically means there's no trail and the glaciers constantly receding and moving, and so it's just like every day basically the terrain looks different. And so, and there's like rockfall, and there's ways to just get really, really sort of lost or confused navigating through that kind of terrain, and so. I had a feeling that would be the crux and it ultimately was the crux for me. Um, but yeah, I used, uh, I used a couple of different um, sort of ways to figure out what the terrain was going to be like. Um, one of the things was actually looking on Instagram tagged locations. So yep. A lot of people post photos of, you know, Oh, I just did the quimble circuit. So I like went on the Insta- I went on Instagram and looked at sort of recent posts where the Huamul circuit or Sarah huamul or even Shaltan were tagged and just kind of scrolled through to see like, okay, what does snowpack look like out there? Is it icy? Like, cause there had just been a recent snowstorm that we had been in, um, <laughs> in a prior day. And so, um, doing that. And then fortunately, um, we had some friends in town as well. And one happens to be a local guide down there. And so we were able to get, um, some really good beta from them and he was so helpful in like reaching out to other guides who had just been out on the circuit and getting some condition reports and you know that people people in those jobs are so willing to help and give information when you're when you want to set out on a cool adventure and so i think that's one of the best ways to get beta is hey the local experts know basically everything about about um those kinds of trails and those routes so you leverage their knowledge and like, that's what I did. And it was so helpful. Um, especially cause you know, when talking about fixed ropes and stuff I hadn't been out there before. I was like, okay, like how serious is this? Like, I feel really comfortable on that kind of terrain on my own, but you know, there always is a limit and there's totally a limit for me on that kind of terrain too. So just really making sure that it was going to be within my, within my wheelhouse and it, for me, totally was, and I was able to deduce that quite easily just by doing that research. But uh, yeah, it, I did quite a bit of research leading up to it, especially with respect to weather, just because the weather windows there are tiny and usually really hard to predict. Like they'll say, you know, oh, weather coming in in twenty in twenty hours, and it'll come in two hours later. Um, so really. Really being cognizant of weather and bringing extra gear for that reason, um, and being even more on top of sort of my own tracking and my own emergency contacts and stuff while doing the circuit, since I was doing it unsupported on my own, um, were like all key factors that I really considered highly when doing it, and it turned out great. And I really would I want to go back and do it again. It's so much fun. It's and beautiful. Highly no. recommend. <laughs> All
0: right. I'll put it on my list once I figure out what a Tyrolean traverse is.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. What struck me is that like a lot of those same concepts kind of apply to another topic I wanted to bring you on to talk about, which is fast packing, um, especially since it's like the start of summer. And I think, given how the popularity of like 200 mile races has increased, um, I kind of see fast packing as like the next iteration of that, right? Like something that will have um, you know, a lot of like currency in, in our community where people are just looking to like push the limits and, and, uh, uh, kind of see what they can do out in the mountains, um, by themselves. And I think we both have, you know, we're not pros, but, uh, well, you're a pro, but, uh, we have experience fast packing and I think it'd be fun to kind of go back and forth, um, on that topic for a little bit and talk about um, some gear that we like and uh, some techniques that have worked for us in the past. Uh, so I think first, we should start out by kind of defining what fast packing is maybe and how it's different than backpacking and ultra running. So where do you think that distinction is made?
1: Yeah, I mean, when I think about fast packing, I even have two sort of subcategories that I think for it. But just like baseline, I think the difference between fast packing and backpacking and just ultra running is you're basically taking out a super minimal pack and you're mostly moving through sort of multi... Maybe multi-day or different kinds of terrain over the course of at least like one overnight. Uh, Whereas ultra running kind of in my in my brain is you know you're you're either doing it in a supported way whether it's a race or you know someone's crewing you on a route that you're doing or maybe you're you're running like the entire time um even if it is through through the night you're 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 maybe really, really running it. But to me, I do think that the distinction starts even when the ultra running category is when there is an overnight. Um, in my brain, fast packing is, you know, you have some overnight gear and, you know, if you're doing it in a self-supported way, then you probably, uh, have that overnight gear with you. Even if you don't use it, you have it. Um, and in a minimal, in a minimal manner, um, unlike backpacking where you're probably bringing a tent and you're bringing cookware and you're bringing you know more comfortable gear uh like sleeping bags and sleeping pads and um yeah that's that's sort of where i think the distinction lies and i think you can even break it out further and say like sort of there's this alpine style of fast packing and there's a more trail style of fast packing because i think there's all, like totally different gear needs for those different types of fast packing too um but that's sort of that's sort of how I would break it out in a really general, in a really general sense.
0: Totally. I mean, I think that like fast packing implies like sleep. I think that's gonna be like the distinction for a lot of people and carrying mm-hmm. like equipment for that. Um, totally. And I also think that like your pack is gonna be your most important like piece of gear for that, because you need something that will allow you to carry enough equipment, but also will allow you to like run efficiently. Absolutely. And I I don't think there are a lot of brands yet that are making gear specifically for fast packing. Yeah. Um, but Especially for like change. the
1: two different types, right? right? Like, you know, I'll do some sort of fast packing that is more alpine style, where my pack need is going to be different than if I have, you know, I'm going to be mostly on trail or, you know, working through just like a forest or super bushy situation. Um, like for example, when, with an Alpine fast pack, I trend to, I tend to pick a pack that has fewer pockets on the outside is sleeker, like isn't going to catch or rip on sharp rocks, um, can have a helmet or ice axe carry. And if I'm, you know, seeking a fast pack where I'm going to be mostly doing, you know, trail Maybe some off trail, but no scrambling really, and it's mostly just like working through, you know, like the forest and the bushes as you know, sort of the the means for potential pack tearing. I'm fine with having a lot more pockets. It doesn't need to be quite as sleek because I'm not going to be worried about things falling out on really steep, consequential terrain, and so I want to just angle, you know, lean more towards having just access. And that usually means more outside pockets. And so those packs are really different. And I think because those packs are different, it becomes sort of a different way of fast packing. Um, you're carrying different things. You're moving a little slower in the alpine terrain than you are, you know, on like the trails. Um, and I think even down to the pull carry, like a pull carry for an alpine fast pack is going to have to be vertical, period. You can't have your pulls, you know, hanging out horizontally and getting caught, you know, if you're going up a chimney situation, like that's just not going to work. But if you're working on the trails, like we, you know, see all the time people have poles and ultra running on their waist that works, that totally goes, but that's going to be a different sort of system depending on what kind of fast packing you're doing. Um, But yeah, those are the sort of, I break it out in those two ways. I think because fast packing is sort of growing and becoming, you know, more of a thing largely because we're finally starting to have like gear that's packable and lightweight enough to make it more accessible for people. Even just like the water systems, like the fact that we don't have to like use a water pump to like filter water or put right. iodine on and make your water taste disgusting. Um, just to have good water is also like making fast packing a thing over backpacking. um, Yeah, Yeah.
0: so I think maybe we should focus more on like the trail based fast packing for now, because I think that's going to be like probably the entry point for most people. Um, Are there any other features in a pack that like you need to have other than like external pockets?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that, yeah, I would say like a pull carry is... You have, I, I think that if you're fast packing without poles, you're doing it wrong. Yeah. I, I feel really strongly that poles are a must because here's the thing. When you are doing something self-supported, unsupported, whatever, you're carrying more gear, if, especially because fast packing is an overnight endeavor. You're carrying more gear and that's a lot of load on the legs and. Pulls help you lighten that load. And I know that a lot of runners don't like having things in their hands or like carrying things, but pulls can truly save your legs in, in these kinds of adventures um and especially if you know there's more a higher tendency to roll an ankle for example because you have a heavier pack on than you are used to if you have poles they can also be an emergency really helpful in an emergency situation to help you basically crutch your way out of the backcountry if that does happen so to me i just think that if you're fast packing and you don't have poles it's it could be detrimental um so yeah i mean i think pole carry is a must I mean, honestly, most of the time when I'm bringing poles on a trail-type fast pack, I'm using them the whole time. So yeah. I'm not really put, tucking them away. An alpine sort of fast pack, I'm definitely not using them the whole time because I'm using my hands on rock, um, which is, makes the pole carry even more important in that regard. But still, like you need to be able to put your poles away if you don't want to use them. Um, and so I think, yeah, pole carry on a pack is a must... I think having as many access points to get gear as possible is so important. Like if, cause I mean, Corinne Malcolm says this, so I'm going to quote her 30 minute mile is faster than a zero minute mile. So if you have the ability to pull things out of your pack without stopping, that's huge. And so trail to so packs that have the ability to just pull things out of pockets, is a game changer and especially if you have access to your gloves or being able to swap hats like oh it's you know it's not as cold i but it's sunny i want to put my sort of sun hat on and tuck my beanie away but you can do all of that without stopping and digging into that main part of your pack i mean that's huge and goes a really long way the more nutrition you can carry that's accessible that goes a long way so you don't have to stop and dig your food out either um and I think, you know, just the durability of like the, the material is super important too. You don't really want a pack that is susceptible to like ripping on a super sharp bush or bramble, especially like if you're doing a fast pack on like, the you know, somewhere in like the, the in Appalachia or like yeah. in the South, like where like brambles and briars are just rampant. Like you need a pack that can withstand those like super sharp branches sticking out. Um And even to the Sierra, I mean, obviously, the Sierra is... There are not as many um, briars or brambles as the South, but you're still going through really sharp bushes at times. And um, it's... Yeah, I think like having that durability is super important and waterproofing too. I mean... It's you don't want your stuff to get wet, and obviously you can prepare for that by putting your things in waterproof bags on the inside. But the the wetter your pack, the heavier it gets. Like you don't really want it to be holding water, then it's just going to be heavier. So totally. um, those are some of the things that I think about when I think about what kinds of fast packs or um, um, in general what to look for.
0: No, I think your point about poles is like yeah, I want to reemphasize that because. There are countless times where I, you know, catch a toe on something and I use poles to, to, you know, break my fall. Uh, I also use poles as like part of my shelters, um, like architecture, like my, the tarp that I use uses those as like stays. Um, and then, yeah, you're right. Like descending and climbing poles are invaluable, um, in terms of like conserving energy. Uh, so definitely doubling down on that. Um, I would also add having a hip belt is nice. I know a lot of fast packing packs uh, forego those, but just having the option, like one that you can kind of stuff if you're not using it. Like at the start of the trip, your pack's going to be heavier, um, especially when it's full of water. So having something to kind of like take some of the weight and put it on your hips as opposed to your shoulders is super helpful, especially if you're running because your arms are going to be swinging. Um, Yeah. And then, yeah, to your point about waterproofing i'm a huge fan of packs that use uh like fabrics like dyneema which are pretty much like water they're water repellent Mm -hmm. and i think unless you're getting absolutely drenched they they should keep your gear dry um they're also incredibly durable and it's cool to see that technology yeah and lightweight it's cool to see that technology being used in shoes now um, which is a separate conversation
1: yeah uh, yeah and i think you should also point out you have a really cool tarp um what is what is the tarp that you have again
0: yeah it's uh i forget the model name i'll I'll link it but it's from this company called z packs which is like i think you know a couple dudes sewing things in their garage somewhere yeah uh they're really popular in the uh through hiking community um and they make really great stuff it's just expensive but i think as again fast packing and um more materials like Dyneema become more popular. Hopefully that'll help reduce price. Um, But that's a really good option. And then as far as packs go, um, I really like what uh, Palante packs is doing. They're uh, this guy's company's name's Andrew Bentz, who at one point had the unsupported FKT on the John Muir trail a few years back.
1: Um,
0: They're based out of like Salt Lake City and they make really like, really innovative gear. that is like clearly designed from someone who has like thousands and thousands of miles on trail. So big fan, uh, big fan of Pilante for sure.
1: Yeah. Um, packs are so cool.
0: Yeah. Uh, any gear that, uh, you can point to live.
1: Yeah. I mean, I know, you know, I've used Ultraspire pack, uh, in the past and I absolutely love it. I think the durability hasn't, it, it's not, it hasn't held up as well to other packs that I'm aware of on the market, but. Yeah. For trail style fast packing, uh, the pack that I had years ago, that's no longer I think available, but it was the Magda. Um, great pack uh, had a lot of options for, for external carry. It did not hold up well in terms of durability or sort of waterproofness. It would get really wet and soggy, but it did cover the bases for pretty much everything else and had some really great um, options for, for pocket access um but that was a pack that i had a while ago and i try to keep my gear as long as possible until it fails um so i've had it on for quite some time i know raid light is super popular um and i'm pretty sure it's like a euro brand but i don't know exactly where it's based you would know that over me um uh, raid light has really cool packs i oftentimes for like an alpine fast pack what i what I would do is I had, there's a, a pack called the Verto that the North Face makes that is an alpine climbing pack. But if you have that plus a waist belt for like a hydration carry, cause the problem with that pack is not meant for fast packing. Um, but it's a great climb pack. So I'll take that and then have like a waist belt where I'll have hydration cause there is no hydration option unless you want a bladder. And I personally am not a huge bladder user. Just reason why I'm not a bladder user is because to, have an extra filter bottle and then have to squeeze all of that filter, the the water from the filter bottle into a bladder. It just takes so much more time than just scooping and going. Plus it's harder to know exactly where you're at from a water storage standpoint. Like how much have I used and how much do I have left? So I am definitely not a huge bladder (laughs) user for fast packing. I just think it, uh, I, I have tried just out of curiosity and I have decided I'm not a fan, especially as the climate gets colder and then you have these this long tube where water can freeze in it i just i think there's a lot more issues with it um it's nice to be able to like carry you know a heavy thing like water on your back and not the front but i just i think that it fails when it comes to like access and knowing how much water you have and also just like time it takes to fill up the bladder with filtered water um but regardless yeah those are sort of what i what I know about and think of, and then, Oh, there's also the, the black diamond distance mm. um, pack, which is obviously does not have the waist belt. Like we were talking about, but The vertical pull carry on that thing is so awesome. My partner Eric has that pack, and he uses it a lot. And it's super durable. It's a water-resistant material, I believe. It's definitely not waterproof, but it holds up very well to rain. For example, as long as you're not like throwing it in a river, which (laughs) you never do, hopefully. Yeah, Um, but I think it happened. And yeah, it has the vertical pull carry. Has an ice axe option. Like that's a great pack. Great sort of uh uh vest pocket front options. Um yeah, it's also a great one.
0: Yeah. I wanna uh circle back to your uh comment about like bladders and like soft flasks. I am completely on board with that. Like I prefer like hard bottles because they're more durable too. They're not gonna puncture. And you know, once your bladder punctures uh or your soft flasks, it's you know, you can't really use it all that much. And we've both had that happen to us. Yeah. So uh, getting, a, water
1: a, everywhere. And right. you're getting and then, uh, yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> then like it kind of undermines all the efforts you did to keep your gear dry, mm-hmm. which is like a comedy of errors. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I will like on my drive up to the mountains, I will stop at a gas station and get a few smart water bottles and drink them as I drive up there and then use those as the bottles I use for our trip. Um, cause what's nice too is like my water filter, which is generally a Sawyer squeeze attaches to the top of a smart water bottle and then you just kind of pass water through the filter by squeezing it um and that system is lasting me thousands of miles to this point yeah um and And i think
1: that's a great system just to to sort of add to that i have some katata and be freeze i have the salmon filter bottles and uh a life straw bottle as well i've tried a couple of different things and i think you know what's hard with the filter bottles of those systems is it, if you don't sort of prep it, it can be so hard, and especially the colder the water is. So like super early morning hour, you're trying to filter. It's just like barely like a trickle coming yeah. through. It takes a while. And, you know, if you're doing like an alpine fast pack where you are going to be climbing a little bit, you're like, oh my God, my hands are getting like tired from this. Like, I don't want that. Um, But yeah, I think like gear Sawyer squeeze hasn't really had as many issues in terms of like, you know, actually having a fast stream of water coming through that some of the bottles have what's nice about the bottles is you aren't it doesn't feel like you're bringing an extra thing because you're just yeah. bringing bottles um but all those bottles are you know they're not hard bottles um they're flasks they're they're not they're not hard a material but and so they do puncture um but yeah i think like I don't know. In my opinion, there's no like best way for those. I think that bladders are <laughs> wrong. But I think um, like having hard bottle is great if you have a good filter option. But then right. it's kind of pick your, pick your poison. Like they all work well. It's just whatever you kind of prefer. Um, but
0: yeah. And then I also think like if you are bringing hard bottles, you need side pockets on your pack because trying to carry totally. those things up front We'll just That's bruise a, your chest.
1: Absolutely not going to happen. Yeah, yeah. I've Yeah, I've never done that. And so, like, the Black Diamond pack has an option to carry those down and farther to the side. And same with that Ultra Spire pack, which I know Ultra Spire makes other packs than the Magda now that are fairly similar. I just can't... I don't know exactly what they're called. But, the yeah. like, Ultra Spire literally makes hard bottles for their packs. And you can put them on the, your sides. Uh, but, yeah, you have to be careful, like, what pack you're yeah. bringing... So I that used, you have the option. <laughs> I used
0: the the distance 15 pack I think on both of our foo bar trips.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And
0: it, and it served us pretty well. Uh, yeah, it's a great yeah. pack. Liv and I have uh we go on we try and go on an annual trip in the Sierra. We call her our, our foo bar which stands.
1: You can look for, that up. <laughs> yeah.
0: Look it up. Uh but <laughs> I think we've we've kind of like dialed in a good system um that is like not closed to tweaks but uh it's it's served us pretty well and um I think a lot of that actually has to do with how we think about food too um because a lot of ultra runners that are getting into fast packing might be tempted to bring like the same stuff that they would take on like you know a 50 mile run and i i think that yeah. they will quickly find that that is not the way to go when you're fast packing so maybe oh, we could totally. talk a little bit about like nutrition uh, yeah. and our approaches to it
1: yeah i mean usually my in my, my i first jump to 200 calories an hour what's the maximum amount of time i could imagine being out there if everything goes wrong and the conditions are crappy Um, which obviously we try to prevent based on doing our own research from a weather standpoint, which we can get into at another point. But yeah, 200 calories an hour and then working back from that. So, okay, what's the absolute max range of calories that I need? And then what's the absolute minimum number of calories I need? And then kind of figuring out sort of a happy medium in between that range. But I love working with ranges just because it's nice to know like, okay, if for whatever reason I get into a bad situation where I do need to sort of ration, I know kind of how much I have on a relative basis to how much my range and within my range, I decided to, to lean, um, max or men. Um, but yeah, first I started 200 calories an hour. Usually I never come close to that out there. I'm like usually like hundred calories an hour. Cause again, it is a lower effort. So like, you're not really pushing as hard. And so, um, it is, it is like kind of a tricky thing. And I think everyone's different too. like, um, you know, some some of the bigger people like bigger guys like want more calories like i know um you know eric my partner he just like eats more and so he takes more calories with him but i don't know um it really is like however whatever you think But you just have to make sure you're enough you have enough um and then yeah i mean i think like I don't bring only performance foods while it's nice to bring as many performance foods as possible. Cause they're light and don't take up as much volume. My stomach just like can't handle all of that. So I bring real food, especially like chips and I'll make like, like sandwiches, like a sort of packable roll with um, uh, like deli meat or cheese. I, I eat meat and I think there's probably great vegetarian options too, but I just like, bring a bunch of those. Um, I try to bring like as many light real food options as possible without it taking up too much weight or space. Cause that's the sort of play with fast packing. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I think you also think like about 200 calories an hour to start too, right?
0: Yeah. I think like I try and do that, but after like 60 or 70 miles, it's just kind of like, just try and eat as much as you can. Like whenever you can, Yeah, uh, at least like that's how I work. Um, mm-hmm. And then also, yeah, like not just bringing sugar. Like I've done that before and it's like the last thing you want after Horrible. 18 hours of eating like shop is another shop block, right? So like salt and crunchy things, different texture things will go a long mm-hmm. way. Um,
1: and electrolytes, especially if you're at altitude.
0: Right, right. I think
1: in the past, I've, I haven't really prioritized bringing uh, as many electrolytes. And I've definitely learned my lesson that your gut needs that like really badly when you're out there that long and so actually bringing some electrolyte options for your drinks is like going to help a lot too um but
0: yeah i totally like bringing like um i know goo energy and tailwind make recovery drinks in single serving mm-hmm. packets and i'll throw one of those in just like to get some protein and it just uh i like the texture it's kind of like drinking a a glass of chocolate milk which is probably my favorite uh post sport beverage
1: totally Uh,
0: but then we we haven't gotten
1: into coffee either which is oh yeah i mean i am so addicted to caffeine that like if i didn't have caffeine out there i would probably not make it because i would just i wouldn't be able to move or function um but yeah i mean literally just bringing like the instant coffee packs and putting them in your water because I don't bring any cooking options at all because it's weight and it's volume that I personally don't need. And I also don't bring sleeping pads um, or anything like that (laughs) or a tent or any shelter. (laughs) But that's me. Um, I definitely... um, Yeah. I don't know.
0: (laughs) No. Caffeine is important. That's the takeaway.
1: Yeah, I, I, yeah,
0: <laughs> I also, I don't know. I feel like I use, clearly tri- I
1: need more of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: I feel like I use these trips to like go into like a gas station and like go around the aisles and be like, this will look interesting to me to try. Like, why don't I just bring this on this trip? And like, you know, so I end up eating a bunch of like weird off-brand candy for most of it, which is, which is also fun.
1: great and less expensive. Performance yeah. foods are so expensive. Um, and I try to keep those, save those for training and racing. And it's, it's just, it's hard to, to, for me at least to be like, yeah, I'm going to spend like a hundred dollars on food because I'm only bringing these performance foods and they're like three dollars a gel. You know, it's like, ah. <laughs> and you're going to have to eat so many of those over the course of a fast pack that it kind of ends up being way more cost effective and great calorie, high calorie option to just like get stuff from gas stations for this type of thing um, totally yeah like sour patch kids they're like uh i, I always forget what they're called but they're like gummy rings basically they're like super sugary like um, the
0: peach rings <laughs> yeah
1: yeah skittles snickers bars yeah jerky
0: jerky's a good one
1: jerky's good yeah, yeah.
0: well i think we covered the nutrition corner of that pretty thoroughly yeah. Uh I'm trying to think of is there any other major topics that we should hit before we get out of here? I guess um navigation is a really good one. Um yeah. I know that we we both spend quite a bit of time playing with routes uh on various mapping software beforehand. Maybe we could kind of just mm-hmm. breeze through that really quickly.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think uh, the things that we haven't really touched on that I think are just worth mentioning, but not we don't necessarily need to go into are yeah, like navigation and mapping, like how we think about picking partners to, to go out into to the back country with um, if you're going with anyone at all. Um, or yeah. And also just like, yeah, for state conditions, like what do we look at for weather and stuff? But I think, and shoes also, shoes are also really important. <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah, for mapping, I mean, honestly, I think it's great to build um, different routes on different, Option. i also i just like love mapping and we're making routes, so i use gaia fat map strava i usually don't really use strava to build my roots for um for these fast packing backcountry things um just because i would basically bought be on manual mode the entire time um and strava's mapping is obviously now integrated with FatMap. map so i'm sure that's changing for this season so it'll be fun to look into that more uh but i just love the flyover on fat map it's so much fun to like yeah I'll build a route on Gaia and upload it into FatMap and just have it on both apps, just as like backups basically, and watch the flyover on FatMap before I go. It's so much fun. Um, but yeah, I and I know I know people use Onyx as well. I have not used Onyx personally, but I, I've heard it's great. So
0: Yeah. I would throw in Caltopo too.
1: Oh, of course. Yeah. Caltopo. Yeah. Caltopo's awesome.
0: Yeah. And then in, in terms of, I guess inactivity tracking, uh, GPS watches. And then I bring a garment in reach just in case kind of gives yeah. me peace of mind and my loved ones, peace of mind that yes, I can like text them always. at the end of a day.
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it's so nice. I know we both have used this feature where you can call in a weather report right where you are, um, yeah. which I don't rely on at all. But it's great and nice to have. Um, and it is expensive. If you do that, like you do get an extra charge. But whenever I'm doing something like that, I'm like, well, it's, you know, it's worth the, the extra cost to like have some more peace of mind, of, like what weather conditions might be approaching. Uh, but yeah, I always upload routes to my phone, my watch, my inReach, like any devices that I have that can have the route on it. I make sure it has on it so that I have backup options if something fails um so i'm not like oh my gosh where am i um and of course like i mean i don't i don't do this anymore but i i used to just like buy actual hard maps of like the quadrangle the usgs quadrangle of where i was going and like really look at it um before I left and like actually do it, like a plot it on like the the paper itself, which is just super fun, but so unnecessary. <laughs> I used to
0: do that too. It was rad because then like after you get back from the trip, you have this kind of like outline of where you want that you yeah. can like interact with. Um, totally. I would definitely probably not like I, I'd be skeptical of the estimated distances sometimes on um various like mapping platforms. You don't want to trust them too much because you'll like I've experienced is like my watch will hit the given distance for the route I plotted and I'm still like five miles from the car. And sometimes that happens at like 2 a.m. And all you really want to do is lay down
1: and cry. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It's definitely happened to both of us. Um, I know. I feel like there's like a 5% error when it comes to like plotting backcountry travel. No matter the distance, if it's like a 50 miles, 60 miles, miles 80 mile, 100 mile, like, I feel like there's a 5% margin of error. Like, no matter what you're plotting, there's gonna be like an extra few miles. And typically, that ends up being an extra hour or two. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's such a good point to bring up. I feel like there has never been a situation that I haven't done a fast pack that that hasn't happened. Right. <laughs> Which is really interesting. It's never been over. It's only been under.
0: Totally. Did you want to talk about um, like choosing an adventure partner and some qualities you look for?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think honestly, that's one of the most important things. And, you know, I think it's really important to understand and discuss with your partner or your group their appetite for risk. From whether when it whatever whatever it comes to like the terrain type you choose, how long they want to be out there, if something were bad were to happen to you or someone else, like how would people react to respond to those situations, and is it a good match? And if it's not, don't go with them, and that's okay. Hopefully, you can still be friends. And if not, then you know that's their whatever. problem. Yeah, I guess. But I mean, honestly, like we're talking about being out in like the wilderness, and if you put yourself and uh, others in a risky situation that you're unprepared for, but said you were um, that can not only put you and your group or other partners at risk, but you can put the people who are coming out to save you at risk as well and take away from resources. You know, if you have been able to make that decision prior um, to just not go or do something different, there's, I think there should be zero ego attached to to making those decisions zero and if anyone gives you a hard time for saying you're not you're not up for for a specific thing then they're not a good partner for you either um but yeah i mean i think that i think fitness level that should be a good match i think knowledge of terrain and tricky situations like have these people had experience in the backcountry before and if not like are you okay being the group leader um And that's great if you want to take people out, but just like be aware of that. Um, and yeah, just like decision making behavior is super important. Um, I know I'm really particular about who I go out in the backcountry with, especially when more complex terrain is involved or the route I want to do is way out there. Um, but I think honestly, if you know, People listening to this have taken avalanche courses. There's a lot of similarities with respect to the decision making and behavioral aspects that you learn, and 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 making decisions in avalanche terrain and navigating avalanche terrain that you do in especially like more complex terrain types in you know the backcountry as well, um, which is honestly like a cool sort of knowledge base to have. If you know your partners have gone through like AVI course training, that's Probably a good sign, but definitely not needed because it's not like we're in, you know, necessarily avalanche terrain when doing fast especially on the trails. But some of the decision making, especially around risk, there are some like interesting parallels there for sure. But yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I think understanding risk level, fitness level, knowledge, especially, you know, first, first, how to perform first aid. Um, is all super important, and then you can make a choice on where you want to go from there, um, or you find other partners to go on the route that you have in mind from there. Right, I think that's super important.
0: Yeah, I think like everyone kind of has like an unofficial like resume. You spend a lot of time outdoors, right? And you can do a little bit of research around potential partners and check out like what they've done and and where their fitness level is at um, to prevent kind of any any kind of sketchy situations in the back country. And I think also like having bailout options is helpful too. Like yeah. that kind of goes back to route planning and stuff, but yeah. Totally. All great points.
1: Yeah. I think that's all super important. And also just making sure everyone's aware of who, you know, who has the first aid kit or who has what first aid options, um, how to use them. I mean, I know adventure medical kits is An awesome pre-assembled kit option. You can find those on Amazon or REI. I have a bajillion of those, and I love them. They're awesome. They're pre-assembled, and you can sort of take or add things out depending on your knowledge of the terrain or um or what you're getting yourself into. I mean, I think like the level of first aid that you need to bring is kind of dependent on like what you what you know how to use right um so the more training you have probably the more stuff you feel like you can bring because you know how to use that you know how to use it um um but yeah i mean woofa and woofer courses are super helpful if you plan on like if you don't have the experience or knowledge you plan on or want to get into it in the future not only do you meet others who are into that stuff too going to those courses so you're building a community but you're also gaining a lot of awesome knowledge too
0: yeah um awesome well i think uh we can put all that stuff in uh the uh the links to the episode in the show notes Liv, what do you have coming up next
1: I am flying to France for Marathon du Mont Blanc. Uh in that is over Western States weekend, as everyone continues to remind me. <laughs> um, it is on June 25th. So the day after Western States. But yeah, I'll be flying out there soon. And I have a few, yeah, I have a few races in Europe for for the year, Tromso Sky Race and Transalpine. So that's the current plan and definitely some fast packing in the Sierra. Uh, which will be very snowy and sloggy this year.
0: (laughs) Still enjoyable nonetheless. Of course. All right. Thanks for talking to me. This has been great.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me back on.
0: That's it for this edition of Off the Couch. Thanks to Olivia for the conversation. Thanks to Justin Bob for producing this episode. And from everyone here at Blister, please take good care of yourself, keep moving forward, and we'll talk to you again next week.